Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height or depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study, let's go to God and ask him for his guidance and direction in our study this morning. Our Father, we are so thankful for your word, that in your word you have revealed to us your thinking You have revealed to us who you are. We come to know you through your word and through the examples of your work in human history that we read about down through uh, our study in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And, Father, it is in the pages of Scripture that we learn about your love and that that love involves not only the provision of blessing, but it also provides the judgment of divine discipline. Now, Father, as we continue our study in Kings today, we pray that uh, we might understand the dynamics of what's going on, especially as they relate to our spiritual life, that the spiritual life of Israel in the Old Testament depicts principles true of the individual spiritual life of the believer in the church age. We pray that we might understand these things clearly, and God the Holy Spirit would make them clear to us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This last week I was gone for three or four days as I went to Atlanta uh, to go to the Evangelical Theological Society meeting there that uh, met on uh, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday of this week. The theme of the conference this year was justification by faith, which most of us as Protestants believe is a pretty standard, well-set doctrine. The reality is not that clear, unfortunately. Just as in uh, military strategy, the basic principles of military strategy have not changed in thousands of years. The same is true in terms of the basic doctrines of the Scripture. They have not changed. But in every generation, every generation, almost every decade now, there are new assaults against the bulwark of truth. And just as the basic principles of military strategy never change, but they always have to be adapted a little bit in light of whatever the current technology might be, the same is true when it comes to theology. We have to understand how new uh, ics, and spasms come along in the church every decade or two, and we have to address those because what is uh, being taught in the ivory tower of seminaries today uh, is usually disrupting the pew in another uh, decade or so. And these ideas filter down in lots of, uh, lots of different ways. And so it was Im- important for, for me to go. There were a lot of positive things. Get that adjusted. A lot of positive things that took place uh, at the conference. 
uh, as well. Great to hear some of the uh, really good speakers. It was also interesting to hear some of those uh, that I, I don't agree with. But conferences like this are particularly important for pastors to go to because it provides uh, just insight to what's going on out there. So often our heads are down and we're so focused on what is happening in our own uh, periphery that we don't see what else is going on and we don't hear these things that are going on uh, around the world and in different environments. So it's uh, it was a good uh, it was a good time. Now I want you to open your Bibles with me to Second Kings chapter 23 this morning. Second Kings chapter 23, and we're going to look at three kings, three evil kings in the kingdom of Judah and the self-destruction of a nation. We'll see how the nation Judah comes under divine discipline and destroys itself because of their, first of all, their rejection of God. That's the foundational issue. They violate the first commandment of the Ten Commandments. They violate the first commandment of keeping uh, loyalty to the Lord God alone. And they have become deeply immersed in false religion and in idolatry from generation to generation. We see the example of God's long-suffering, his patience with them, as he constantly, in his love, seeks to bring them back to him. And we've studied this uh, time and again, where there have been uh, periods where the nation has returned to God and they have been led by leaders who desire to cleanse the nation of the sins of idolatry and then only to be followed by another king who leads the people back into various forms of perversion and various forms of idolatry. And what we see is through their decision to reject God, through their exercise of personal responsible volition, they choose against God. They seek to put their focus, their priorities, their love and affection on something in the creation, something other than God. And so now God is going to be faithful to his promise in the Torah, in, in the Mosaic law, to bring judgment upon the nation and to finally remove them from the land of promise, the land that he had uh, promised them to promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so what we see in this section beginning in Second uh, Kings chapter 23 is a focus on these three evil kings. Here is a chart of these kings so that you can sort of uh, visualize uh, the chronology here and get a little better understanding of what we see happening. Uh, we studied Josiah, and last time we came to the end of his life and end of his reign. We'll touch base on that again as we go through our material this morning. He had two sons through two different wives, uh, Jehoahaz, who will reign for only three months, and he once again returns the people back to idolatry and to evil, and he continues to do evil in the sight of the Lord. He, though, uh, is replaced after three months by his half-brother Jehoiakim, who will reign for 11 years, and he continues the policy of spiritual apostasy from God, rebellion against God, disloyalty in, in Israel under the Mosaic law, Idolatry is, in essence, treason because it is a theocracy. God is the ruler of Israel. And so evil against God is always defined starting with a rejection of God as the ultimate starting point in the focal point of the 
uh, of the nation's thinking. He is, he's rejected. Something else is put in his place. The people no longer worship God and put him as the highest priority, and they worship something else. So Jehoiakim uh, continues that decline, and it will be in the midst of his reign in 605 B.C. that they'll experience the first invasion of the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, when he dies, he is replaced by his son Jehoiakim, who again reigns only three months in five, uh, 598 uh, B.C. And so this begins to set us up for the uh, destruction uh, of Jerusalem, the fall of uh, the southern kingdom of Judah, and their entrance into the Babylonian uh, captivity. To understand where we're going with the details of our passage, we see this sort of a summary statement that comes in the, uh, in the, during the reign of Jehoiakim. In 2 Kings 24, 2 through 4, we read, The Lord sent against him, that would be against uh, Jehoiakim, bands of Chaldeans, bands of Arameans, bands of Moabites, and bands of Ammonites. So these traditional enemies of Israel now have been strengthened, and they are invading the land. This is part of the... Uh, fourth cycle of divine discipline that God had promised in Leviticus chapter 26, the invasion by foreign powers. And we read, so he sent them, that is God sent them. God is the one who is behind bringing this evil and suffering and discipline upon the southern kingdom of Judah because they have rejected him, because they have violated Torah and they have refused to uh, implement the Mosaic law in the life of the nation. So he sent them against Judah to destroy it according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken through his servants, the prophets. Surely at the command of the Lord it came upon Judah to remove them from his sight because of the sins of Manasseh according to all that he had done. And also for the innocent blood which he shed, for he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and the Lord would not forgive. And so because of their violation of the individual mandates in the Mosaic law to execute righteousness and justice, to stand up for the widows, for the orphans, for those who were poor, for those who were dealt injustice, they are condemned. The reference to the innocent blood which he shed refers once again to child sacrifice. And it is all based on their worship of other things other than God. Now, just to get a, an understanding and a framework chronologically for this period, I put together this little chart to hit basic chronological benchmarks of this time period. In 640 B.C., Josiah becomes the king of Judah. He is, uh, once again, uh, bringing a revival or restoration of the law into uh, into the land. He replaces two evil kings, Manasseh and Ammon, even though at the end of Manasseh's life there is a partial uh, return to the law. He doesn't live long enough. It happens right at the end of, of, his, uh, of his time on the throne. And so there isn't a complete uh, restoration in the land. It's only partial. Ammon only ruled for uh, less than two years, and he's replaced by, by Josiah. At the age of eight, he became the king of Judah. In 633, seven years later, Ashurbanipal dies. He is the last great ruler of the Assyrian Empire. And from that point on, Assyria goes into, uh, goes into serious decline. 
Uh, Assyria is ruled by a succession of incompetent rulers and those who just don't have the talent to hold the empire together, and it begins to crumble uh, from the inside. Then in 630, some 10 years after Josiah became king, when he's 18 years old, a copy of the Torah, which had been lost, is rediscovered in the temple, and we study this where he reads the Torah to the people, and the people are uh, rebuked by the word of God, and they turn from their idolatry, turn back to God, and there is a cleansing in the nation, a cleansing of the temple, a cleansing of the southern kingdom of Judah, cleansing in the north, and the nation has a period of prosperity, which is the last segment of divine grace before judgment. God always deals with us in grace before judgment, giving us that opportunity, that last opportunity to turn back to him in obedience. Then in 626, things on the international scene change. And I think there's an important principle here, and that is that we ought to be aware of what is happening uh, internationally, not just what happens uh, in terms of the Old Testament and the nations there, but e- even today, because God is the overlord of history. He is the one who is working out his plans and purposes. And we may not always understand precisely how the international dynamics uh, are affected by God's plan and how they're going to bring about his ultimate, his ultimate plan. But we know that when we see the massive shifts and movements in history and realignment of powers, that this is under the oversight of God, and he is bringing about, uh, bringing about his will. So that divine viewpoint gives us an understanding that God is the one who is in charge. And even though things may look chaotic, even though things may look as if there's no hope, and I'm sure that if you or I were living in the southern kingdom of Judah during this period, uh, we would believe that, that, that things were hopeless. The nation is in, in decline. The economy is, is, is a shambles. They are initially a vassal of Egypt, and then they become a vassal of Babylon. Uh, taxation is burdensome. And there doesn't seem to be any real hope. There's no future. The people have turned away from God, and so life has become uh, much, much less than the glory days of Hezekiah uh, more recently and Solomon or David in the more distant past. A principle we learn from all of this is that spiritual decisions of a people, of a nation, affect the, their economics, their politics, their military. You can't separate the physical uh, results, the physical dynamics of a culture from their spiritual orientation. So at, what happens internationally is that Assyria, which has been the dominant power for over a 100 years, begins to crumble. And whenever there is one, uh, the crumbling of one empire, there's always another power that moves into that vacuum. And what takes place is that in 626, uh, Nabopolassar executes a rebellion against Assyria. He becomes, uh, uh, he, he, uh, Babylon becomes independent of Assyria and he begins to attack, uh, the Assyrian army. In 612, the Babylonians destroyed Nineveh, just wiped it out, and the Assyrians are forced to move their capital west to Haran. And then uh, in 610, two years later, they are defeated uh, soundly and finally. 
uh, and uh, Haran is captured by uh, by the Babylonians. And then just following that, as a Syrian army, what is left of it is falling back uh, towards Carchemish, which is just to the west of, of Haran. Uh, Pharaoh Necho begins to move up uh, from the south. Uh, he is the pharaoh of Egypt. He's one of the lesser-known pharaohs, and his loyalty has shifted uh, back and forth, but he begins to move up in order to support Assyria against the uh, Babylonians. And this is the cause of his movement to come up through Judah from the south uh, against uh, the Babylonian army. Now, here's a map that will help us to sort of depict this. We have Babylon down here uh, in what is now modern Iraq. The Babylonians are moving to the north and slightly west. They defeat uh, the Assyrian army, destroy Nineveh. Uh, Syrians move their capital to Haran. And then as they are defeated there, they fall back to Carchemish. And then we will see that Pharaoh Necho comes up from the south. Now, last week, you may think that I misspoke when I said that uh, Pharaoh Necho was moving uh, against the Assyrians. In fact, I was, had read a couple of commentaries that had been written in the late 19th, early 20th century, and that was the thought at that time, although records since that period have discovered that uh, Pharaoh Necho was moving not against the Assyrians but in support of the Assyrians because he feared the threat of the rising power of Babylon. Now, the death of Josiah is given a little more detail in Second Chronicles chapter 35, uh, verses 20. And what we read there as uh, at the end of his reign, this event occurs. Pharaoh Necho is moving up from Egypt to make war, uh, to go to the battle of Carchemish, which actually doesn't take place. Until the final battle at Carchemish doesn't take place until uh, 606. And he moves north. Here's a map showing that movement as he would come up through uh, what is now the Gaza Strip, the area uh, dominated by the Babylons. This was really the way of the sea. This was a major trade route moving up through familiar uh, uh, cities, Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod. And at Megiddo, he is met by Josiah. Now, no one really knows why Josiah decided to go to battle against uh, Pharaoh Necho. Perhaps he felt like the sovereignty of Judah was being threatened by the presence of this foreign army, although Megiddo was not in the southern kingdom of Judah. It was in what had been uh, the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, perhaps he felt that if he could defeat uh, Pharaoh Necho, then with the collapse of the Assyrian army, this, this would put the kingdom of Judah in a much stronger position. But actually, we have no idea what his motivation was or why he went into battle uh, against Pharaoh Necho. But even though Pharaoh Necho tried to dissuade him, as is described in Second Chronicles 35, uh, 21 and 22, uh, Josiah would not turn away from him. In verse 21, Necho sent messengers and warned Josiah, said, I'm not coming against you. I'm not attacking you. Uh, I'm coming against the house uh, that would be the dynasty which I am at, with which I am at war, the Babylonians. And in verse 22, jo Josiah rejects that uh, overture of peace. He would not turn away from him but disguised himself in order to make war with him. And even though he was disguised, nevertheless, uh, he was fatally shot uh, by an arrow and he was killed at Megiddo, which is the circle 
uh, at the lower level. Now, what happens after this is that Neko, Pharaoh Necho uh, is going to move north to Ribla, but because of what happens with the death of the king of Judah, that he's going to repl- be replaced by his son Jehoahaz, who is seen by the people of the southern kingdom of Judah as being a strong anti-Egyptian leader. Uh, Jehoahaz is going to lead them back into idolatry, but he's viewed as being strong uh, on the military and that he's the one who will provide strength and power and defense uh, against the Egyptians. So those in Judah make Jehoahaz the king. But this is not uh, the person that Necho wants to be king. He's now pretty much in control of the territory. And so Jehoahaz is only going to last for three months before he will be uh, uh, imprisoned uh, by Pharaoh Necho and eventually taken to Egypt uh, where he will die in prison. And we see this gradual decline and deterioration set in in the house of David. Uh, Pharaoh Necho sent his major army, army down south to Jerusalem. Uh, there he uh, was able to capture uh, Jehoahaz, and then he brought him up north to uh, the area in, in uh, Syria called Ribla. So after Josiah was shot, he's removed from the battlefield. But I want you to pay attention to what is said in verse 25. All of the nation is sorrowful. They are grieving over the loss of this godly king. And we're told in verse 25 that Jeremiah wrote a lament for Josiah. And all the male and female singers spoke about Josiah in their lamentations, he writes, to this day. And they made them an ordinance in Israel. Behold, they are also written in the Lamentations, a five-chapter book written by Jeremiah After the fall of Jerusalem, Lamentations is a great picture into an understanding of how believers should handle crises and handle disaster that comes uh, from divine discipline, that God, even though he brings discipline, yet he is faithful. This is our famous verse that we quote, Lamentations 3, 22 and 23, Great is thy faithfulness. And this comes in the midst of experiencing the uh, judgment of divine discipline. And so that brings us up to the next king and the description of the next king, Jehoahaz. We're told in Second Kings 23.31 that Jehoahaz is 23 years old when he became king. He's not the oldest son. He's the second oldest. He was put into power basically by the people because he was, as I said earlier, viewed to be uh, strong in his position against the Egyptians. Uh, He's basically a 90-day disaster. He reigns only three months when he's 23 years old. He's given the birth name of Shalom, by whom he is referred in Jeremiah 22, 10 through 21, as well as in 1 Chronicles 3, 15, so that his birth name was Shalom, and his the name that he reigned under was Jehoahaz. He returns the nation to the pattern of evil, as seen in the reigns of Ahaz and Manasseh, and he does evil in the sight of the Lord. He is brought under discipline, obviously, by God. He's imprisoned by Pharaoh Necho at Ribla, and then he is taken to Egypt, where he will die a horrible death. We're told in 2 Kings 23, 32, and 33, that he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his fathers had done. And after he is made a captive and after he has taken into prison, then 
Pharaoh Necho will impose a tribute upon the nation and impose a, uh, a fine, basically, upon the kingdom of Judah for having put uh, Jehoahaz in power. Now, we're told that he imposes tribute of a 100 talents of silver and a talent of gold. Now, a talent was equal to 3,000 shekels. Now, this was back when money actually had value. When uh, money was not, value wasn't imputed to it by some uh, fiat act of government, but by the, the coins were weighed, they were made of silver and gold, and so they represented uh, real value, something that the coins in your pocket and my pocket uh, do not have. So a talent always, that were always, uh, uh, had a firm set of weights and measures when it came to money. If you go back and read the Mosaic Law, there's a strong emphasis on this as that which is righteous, that which is according to a standard, and this was to be upheld so that this would preserve the value of money and the value of wealth in the life of the nation. It is only when you get into a situation uh, that occurred both in the ancient world and today where you have inflation, where they began to use other metals and coins and devalue the currency, and this begins to, when a government does that, it begins to rob wealth from the people. So a talent was worth 3,000 shekels or approximately 75 and a half pounds. So that if um, if you had a hundred talents, uh, each talent would have approximately 907 ounces, according to Troy weight, and a hundred talents would be uh, worth about two hundred eight thousand uh, dollars in today's value of silver. Then the talent of gold would also weigh approximately 75 pounds. Uh, this would have value at today's market rate of uh, $1,350 per ounce. This would be worth about a million and a quarter. Although there are uh, a number of scholars who believe that somehow there's a textual variant here. In some ancient translations, it's read as either 10 uh, talents of gold or 100 talents of gold, which would be more in keeping with the uh, they believe with the amount of silver. So we're not sure exactly how much this w- is, but it would have been a, a burdensome uh, fine placed upon uh, the nation. Now it's at Ribla here that uh, uh, Jehoahaz was, was imprisoned before he went to, uh, went to uh, Egypt. Also at Ribla is a, an area of, of military, um, a military value. It was a strategic point. This is an area where Nebuchadnezzar later on will also form up his armies. It's a place to which uh, Zedekiah, the last king of the southern kingdom of Judah, will be taken. It's where all of his sons will be executed before his eyes, uh, before his eyes are put out. So there was a significance to this particular uh, location. Then we read in verse 34 that having deposed, captured, imprisoned uh, Jehoahaz, then Pharaoh Necho makes uh, Eliakim, his older brother, this, uh, the king, in place of his father Josiah. And he changes his name. Eliakim means my God established, and Jehoiakim means Yahweh established, the J-E or Y uh, at the beginning of the name is a shift from El 
for the generic word for God to the first syllable in Yahweh for the personal name of God. The fact that he changes his name, there's not a theological significance to the change in name. It is showing that Pharaoh Necho is exercising his dominance over the southern kingdom of Judah, and he has the right to name uh, not only to uh, put the person he wants into power, but also to, to name them. So it has a symbolic value. And then we read in verse uh, 35 that so Jehoiakim gave the silver and gold to Pharaoh. So this would be the uh, 100 talents of silver and the talent of gold. Jehoiakim gave the silver and gold to Pharaoh, but he taxed the land to give money according to the command of Pharaoh. So there is a continued tribute, an annual tribute that had to be paid uh, to the overlord, to what would be referred to as the suzerain, because Judah is now seen as a vassal or a servant nation uh, to Egypt at the beginning of Jehoiakim's uh, rule. So he exacted the silver and gold from the people of the land from everyone according to his assessment and to give it to Pharaoh Necho. So now the money, the wealth of the nation is as hemorrhaging as it is taken uh, down to Egypt. The principle we learn here again, bad spiritual decisions lead to economic disaster. How we view ultimate reality affects decisions we make with regard to law, with regard to uh, money with regard to investments, the decisions that are made in the halls of power uh, reflect the worldview of the leaders. And the worldview of the leaders are no different from the worldview of the people. And so when the culture, when the civilization has turned its back on God, when it has become uh, mired in the, in the cultural relativism, the paganism always produces, then this always has its negative consequences. The, the uh, details of this are spelled out in the book of uh, Leviticus as well as in uh, Deuteronomy. In 2 Kings 23:36, we read that Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zebuda, the daughter of Padiah, so here we learn that he's a half-brother. He doesn't have the same mother as Jehoahaz. And again, the spiritual assessment, he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his fathers had done. And so just a slide to give us a summary of Jehoiakim's reign. He reigns for 11 years, beginning at the age of 25. He continues and increases the evil of his uh, brother Jehoahaz. And uh, initially, at the beginning of his reign, he's under the uh, dominion of, of Egypt, and so he continues to pay tribute to Egypt. But after, after 605, as the Babylonians have defeated the Egyptians at the Battle of Carchemish, then he has to pay tribute to Babylon. After three years of paying tribute to Babylon, he recognizes how this is destroying his country economically, and so he attempted to revolt against Nebuchadnezzar, which just brought on uh, the wrath of the Babylonian Empire, and Nebuchadnezzar invaded the country. So God, we're told in these verses, intensifies the military invasions. The other nations surrounding Israel have grown in power and strength, but Israel has lost physical power. They've lost economic strength and military strength because at the core of their culture 
they have lost the, the strength that comes from their relationship with God. And so God has allowed this to work itself out in terms of its, uh, in terms of its normal consequences that God has built into the framework of, of reality. So that spiritual decisions have physical consequences in terms of politics, in terms of law, in terms of economics. Whenever we leave a righteous, absolute external standard, for example, in monetary things, when that external standard is left, then what replaces it is simply some sort of relativistic standard that is grounded only on the experience of man. And the result of that is always injustice. And this is the real issue that is going on at this time uh, in Israel's history. The, the indictment that God brings against the southern kingdom of Judah is an indictment first because they have left their love for God. They have violated the uh, first two commandments in the Ten Commandments, and they've committed treason against God. He is not the only focus of their worship. And secondly, as a result of that, then unrighteousness or injustice has entered into the land. Uh, the fifth thing we see in terms of Jehoiakim's life is that he is, uh, excuse me, that's left over from the other slide. He, uh, he dies in office under the control of the Babylonians. Then we come to the final, then we come to the final statement regarding what God is doing. The, the verses that I started started off with. The Lord sent against him Chaldeans, Arameans, Moabites, and Ammonites. As Israel has become weak, the enemies begin to pick off all of the things of value in the southern kingdom of Judah. And God, yet God is behind it. This is the divine interpretation of history. It's not just that they became weak and these other nations moved into the uh, vacuum of power. It is that God is orchestrating these events. There is a spiritual reality that goes beyond the physical reality. We can't just measure these things in terms of uh, in terms of empiricism and in terms of the study of economic laws or military laws of strategy or political laws, but there is a spiritual reality that takes place that is the ultimate causation in human history. If Israel had been positive to God, if they had been obedient to God, then that would have changed the scenario. And so it is always that spiritual factor that is the ultimate uh, cause and effect. So God sends these armies against Judah to destroy it, and this he is warned about according to his servants, the prophets. And verse 3 tells us it's at the command of the Lord that it came against, uh, came upon Judah to remove them from his sight because of the sins of Manasseh. This is what God had promised back in chapter 21 when Manasseh took the people into the worst perversions with child sacrifice and with all of the homosexual as well as heterosexual perversions in the fertility religions. All of those things were going on. This was such a violation of the Mosaic law that God promised that he would no longer stay his hand and he would bring final judgment upon the people. Now, if we want to understand the dynamics of the background of this, then we should look at Jeremiah chapter 22. By this time, Jeremiah is the primary prophet in the southern kingdom of Judah, and he brings his uh, warning of judgment 
his specific divine viewpoint analysis against the southern kingdom of Judah, and we read this in Jeremiah chapter 22. It is in this chapter that we see a summary, a summary of the indictment against the sons of Josiah. That begins in verse 11, but I want to go back to the first verse of the chapter to pick up the context. Thus says the Lord in his address to Jeremiah, Go down to the house of the king of Judah, and there speak this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, O king of Judah, you who sit on the throne of David, you and your servants, and your people who enter these gates. So he's addressing the, the, the ruler of Judah, the one who is responsible for the nation uh, before God. Thus says the Lord, execute judgment and righteousness. This is ultimately the responsibility of the king to oversee uh, the function of true, true justice according to the Mosaic law within the framework of the nation's, uh, the nation's life. Execute judgment and righteousness. When a nation is walking with integrity before God, then there is judgment and there, there's justice and there's righteousness in the courts of law. The people are treated according to the standards of the Mosaic law. They are to love their neighbor, remember, as they love themselves. But once they put themselves above their neighbor, then the neighbors will be the ones who are the victims of injustice. They will be treated poorly. They will be uh, treated with injustice in the courts of law. There will be false uh, witnesses in the courts of law, and this ultimately will lead to a degradation of the of justice in the nation, and this is what is described in the following verses. Uh, The king is told, execute judgment and righteousness and deliver the plundered out of the hand of the oppressor. Do no wrong and do no violence to the stranger, that is the uh, uh, non-Jew that was living in the land. Do no violence to the fatherless or the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place, that is the life of the children that were offered uh, offered to idols. And so the command to the king is to make sure that justice prevails in the land and in, in the courts. And the warning is given in verse 4, For if you indeed do this thing, uh, then shall enter the gates of this house, riding on horses and in chariots, accompanied by servants and people, kings who sit on the throne of David. In other words, God is promising ongoing blessing for the house of David if righteousness characterizes their reign. Verse 5, But if you will not hear these words, I swear by myself, says the Lord, that this house, that is the, the dynasty of David, shall become a desolation. For thus says the Lord to the house of the king of Judah, You are Gilead to me, the head of Lebanon. Now those were two areas that where they were covered with forests in the ancient world. And it was the, remember, the cedars of Lebanon was the source of the timber that was used in constructing both the, uh, both the temple as well as the palace of, of uh, Solomon and the palace of the kings of Judah. And so he's referring to Gilead and Lebanon as, as a metaphor for the source of of the wealth that was displayed in the palace of the king. He says, You are Gilead to me, the head of Lebanon, yet I surely will make you a wilderness. I will chop down the tree, which is the the, uh, a reference to the palace of the king. I will surely make you a wilderness. 
cities which are not inhabited. I will prepare destroyers against you, everyone with his weapons. They shall cut down your choice cedars and cast them into the fire. The choice cedars would, of course, is a reference, a metaphor for the palace of the king. Verse 8, and many nations will pass by this city, and everyone will say to his neighbor, why has the Lord done this to this great city? That's the point. God is not bringing judgment upon the nation for its own sake. What is at stake is the glory of God and his, the faithfulness to his word, the faithfulness to his promise. And in the Mosaic Law, God said, If you will obey me, I will bless this nation in phenomenal ways, and all the people, uh, peoples of the nations will come by and they will say, why, What is this nation? Why are they so great? Why are they so blessed? And the answer will be because of the Lord their God. But this is the reverse of that now because they're under divine discipline. And God says what will happen now is after the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the palace, the destruction of the temple, people will come by and they say, why has the Lord done this to this great city? And the answer will be because they have forsaken the covenant of the Lord, because they broke the Torah, because they violated the Mosaic law, they forsook the Lord their God, and they worshiped other gods and served them. So what we see God doing here is taking these events that occur in history and giving us the spiritual dimension behind them and showing that the blessing is to support his glory and to recognize his grace and his goodness and to glorify God but the destruction is the result of violating God's will. It's the result of disobeying the law, and so that the judgment itself is a sign of God's faithfulness. It is a sign of his righteous character, so that righteousness and love produce both blessing, and when there is a violation of God's standard, then it brings judgment. In verse 10, there's a warning, Weep not for the dead, that is for Josiah, nor bemoan him. Weep bitterly for him who goes away. That's Jehoahaz who was taken away to Egypt. For he shall return no more nor see his native country. And then in verse 11, uh, there is a, uh, speaks of Jehoahaz again. For thus says the Lord concerning Shalom, that's Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, who reigned instead of Josiah his father, who went from this place, he shall not return here anymore. But he shall die in the place where they have led him captive, and shall see the, and he shall see this land no more. Then verse 13 gets to the heart of the matter. Woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness. Woe is always used as a pronouncement of judgment by God. There is a judgment coming to the person who builds his house, who builds his life, who erects his, the, the power base of his dynasty on unrighteousness, that is the violation of God's absolute standard. The Hebrew word for righteousness is uh, tzedakah. The verb is or, or, or tzedek, also tzedakah, and this has to do with the absolute standard of righteousness or integrity that God establishes. So when that is, when we fall short of that, that is unrighteousness, a violation of his standard. Woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness, who builds his kingdom on an unrighteous economy, who builds his kingdom on a worship, a worship of idols and a worship of 
other things that give happiness and meaning to life other than God. Uh, woe to him who builds his house on, on lies, on an unjust court system and an unjust government. Uh, and he says, uh, and his chambers, who builds his house by unrighteousness and his chambers by injustice, who uses his neighbor's service without wages. So this recognizes the legitimacy of the worker who works for an honest wage. But when you have inflation, that destroys honest money. It destroys the legitimacy of the value of the payment for wages. This legitimizes the fact that the person has a right to work and to earn a just return from his work. And when a government takes away from that, then this is unrighteousness. Who uses his neighbor's service without wages and gives him nothing for his work. Who says, I will build myself a wide house with spacious chambers and cut out windows for it, paneling it with cedar and painting it with vermilion. This is the expanse of government at the expense of the people because the government is not a wealth producer. Government is the role of government is to preserve the integrity of the nation, to uh, protect it from the incursion of foreign enemies, and to protect it from criminality within. This is the uh, function of government under the divine viewpoint teaching uh, of Scripture. It is not the role of government to provide equal results from people's uh, labor. So, so here we have the depiction of the government that is expansive at the expense of the people. Verse 15, God says, Shall you reign because you enclose yourself in cedar? In other words, shall you have power because you are, you are your own best protection? You have built a uh, defense system that is going to protect you uh, over against uh, enemies rather than independence upon me. He goes on to ask, Did not your father eat and drink and do justice and righteousness? That would be a reference back to Josiah. Then it was well with him. See, when the law was implemented, there was blessing, there was justice, and there was righteousness, and it was well with him. He was blessed. The nation was blessed. Uh, he judged the cause of the poor and the needy. Then it was well, he says in verse 16. Was not this knowing me? So justice in the land is based on an external standard than just the viewpoint of the majority. And then in verse 17, the indictment continues at your eyes, and your heart are for nothing but your own covetousness. This is always the, uh, the flaw in human government, is that government seeks to aggrandize itself, to increase its own power base, and to become the tyrant and the ruler of the people. The true nature of liberty, as uh, our founding fathers understood it and as we should understood it, is not the freedom to do what we want to do, but it is freedom from government. It is freedom from the incursion and the overreaching power of government going beyond its divinely ordained uh, limits of protecting us from foreign enemies and from domestic enemies. So when the government sets its eyes, its heart, on uh, increasing its own power, increasing its own size, then this always takes away from the liberty, the freedom, the responsibility of the people. And so this is the indictment that is given uh, in these verses. Now, as we close, I want to take us back to what is said within the uh, Mosaic Law. 
skip ahead to, let's go. Leviticus 19.15 states, You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty. This is a standard of righteousness. Just because someone is poor, it may make you feel better emotionally in order to give them a helping hand, but compassion is not, does not have its place in the courtroom. You don't take into account the fact that the person is poor, the person is needy. Neither do you take into account the fact that the person is wealthy or the person is power. This is what true justice is. You weigh each situation on its own merits, not on the basis of the position of the individual in society. The Torah in this one verse does away with this whole concept of social justice that has as its father uh, Marxist philosophy. This is not what we are to do. We're not to pay attention to the fact that this is a poor person or uh, that this person comes from needy circumstances. We're not to take into account either that they are wealthy, that they're the uh, CEO of a large, large corporation. We are to ignore those factors. They do not have anything to do with the case at hand. Uh, Leviticus says, You shall not be partial to the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty. In righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. This takes us back to a key passage in the Mosaic Law in Exodus chapter uh, 23. There are various mandates that are given in Exodus chapter 23. Uh, the first that I have here, the first three verses we read, you shall not circulate a false report. This is an expansion on the commandment not to bear false witness. You shall, know in, um, you shall not circulate a false report. Do not put your hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness. The problem is when we slip away from divine absolutes, then we no longer have a sure and certain framework for defining what is right and what is wrong. And who is it then that defines what is right and what is wrong? Either it is the creator God who is outside of the system, or it is the people within the system. And once you make the people the final arbiter of what is right and what is wrong, then you've laid the foundation for injustice and uh, moral relativism. This is seen in the next verse, Exodus 23.2, You shall not follow a crowd to do evil. In other words, don't make your judgments in the courts according to the majority view of the people. They're, the majority view of the people do not determine what is right or wrong. The majority view of the people does not determine what is righteous or what is unrighteous. There must be an external standard. But when you li live in a society that has rejected the law, that has rejected, as we have in our world today, the external standards of Scripture, then there's nothing left than to be in the fluid state of always changing what is right and what is wrong. And then the judges begin to rule on the basis of their personal opinion and on their personal taste. And this leads us even further into, uh, the, uh, into cultural destruction. So Exodus 23.2 recognizes the principle that the, the, the multitudes are not the source of the standards. You shall not follow a crowd to do evil, nor shall you testify in a dispute so as to turn aside after many to pervert justice. Just because the emotions of the crowd support uh, one particular verdict 
does not mean that that is a righteous verdict. Uh, the verdicts must be made on the basis of law. And there have been numerous decisions uh, in this nation as well as in other nations where the popular opinion, the politically correct view, has influenced the judge and influenced the jury, and justice has been perverted, and this happens uh, more and more. Verse 3 states, You shall not show partiality to a poor man in his dispute. Just because he is uh, poor, just because he lacks uh, anything, just because he is in dire circumstances, does not mean that the courtroom is the place to somehow resolve the fact that he is uh, he is poor. One writer uh, relates the uh, a story that he heard years ago in China. He writes, in the 1930s, I heard a missionary describe an episode in old China. A neighboring missionary kept two cows for his family and associates to provide milk. His son, perhaps aged five or six, was playing with a Chinese boy of the same age. At one point, they tossed some small pebbles at a Chinese neighbor's sickly and dying cow. That night, the cow died. The missionary and his son were uh, placed on trial for killing the cow, and the verdict was that one of his cows had to be given to replace the neighbor's dead cow. The missionary was outraged and protested the decision. The court and the people were in turn shocked by his protest. Of course, his son did not kill the cow, but he had two cows, and the neighbor now had none. Justice, the missionary learned in time, did not exist there because many extraneous concerns governed the courts. Partiality to the poor might seem noble, but its result is injustice. Sentimentalism can be as evil as tyranny in its consequences. We cannot assume that the poor or the rich are necessarily right. Sin is no respecter of persons. And so when we take into account the person's social standing, we cannot let some uh, relativistic, artificial standards such as social justice become the standard for governing the decisions of the court. In verse 6, we read just the opposite. You shall not pervert the judgment of your uh, of the poor in his dispute. Uh, you shall uh, pay attention to, uh, or not pay attention to his position, uh, to his own personal economic standing. Keep yourself far from a false matter. Do not kill the innocent and the righteous. This is part of the indictment against um, uh, Jehoiakim. Do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not justify the wicked. And then in verse 8, and you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the discerning and perverts the words of the righteous. And then finally in verse 9, you shall not oppress a stranger, for you know the heart of a stranger, because you are strangers in the land of Egypt. In other words, in Exodus chapter 23, we have the standards of righteousness. The indictment against Jehoiakim is that they have perverted the standard of justice in the Mosaic law, and so then God is going to bring about the judgment that he promised in the Mosaic Law. In Leviticus chapter 26, verse 43, we read, The land also shall be left empty by them, and will enjoy its Sabbaths while it lies desolate without them. This is in the fifth cycle, the fifth stage of discipline. If the nation continues in unrighteousness and unfaithfulness to God, then God will remove them from the land uh, that he promised them, and the land will be left desolate because of their guilt. And at the conclusion here in verse 43, because they despised my judgments and because their soul abhorred 
my statutes. That's the ultimate issue in per, our personal lives, and it's the ultimate issue in history. But verse 44 always holds out hope. Yet for all that, God promises Israel, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not cast them away, nor shall I abhor them, to utterly destroy them and break my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. And the passage goes on to promise that God will indeed restore them, that grace is always available. It doesn't matter how we failed. It doesn't matter what we've done. It doesn't matter what sins we've committed. What matters is that we can always turn to God in his grace for salvation and for recovery from sin, for God's grace always holds out the offer of hope and the offer of recovery. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study uh, these things in the life of the nation of Judah, for they so often mirror trends and cycles that occur down through history. Father, we recognize that whenever we as individuals get away from your word and the standard of the absolutes of your word, then we always put in our, ourselves in the same uh, position of self-destruction uh, that the kingdom of Judah was in. Yet we know that your grace is always extending itself to us, always the opportunity to turn back uh, from our sin, always the opportunity to turn to you, always the hope of recovery, always the hope of future restoration to fellowship with you. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that is uh, unsure of their eternal destiny or uncertain of their salvation, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. When he hung there on the cross between 12 noon and 3 p.m. on that day, all of the sins of the world were imputed to him. They were reckoned as his judicially so that he was able to pay the penalty in full in our place. And because he paid the penalty in our place, uh, his righteousness is now available to us simply by faith alone, so that when we trust in him, his righteousness is applied to us. It is reckoned as ours, so that we are saved not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to your mercy. Now, Father, we pray that you would make this gospel clear to uh, anyone who needs to hear it, and that they would respond by simply trusting in Jesus. And at that instant, those who trust in Jesus are eternally saved. Father, we pray that you would challenge each of us with the things that we have studied today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.